pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We are uh, just grateful to be here together as a church family and now to turn to your word together. We ask uh, that you would teach us. Would you shape us and convict us by your word? Help us understand it. Please help us apply it to our lives. Lord, we give you this time with humble and joyful hearts, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, hey, welcome everybody to FBC. Once again, we're so glad that you are here. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors and we just want to welcome you and want to invite you to open up your Bible with us to John chapter 17, uh, verse nine, which Paul just read a good chunk of uh, our text for the morning. So John 17, verse nine is where we'll be as we're uh, continuing our sermon series in the gospel of John that we've been in for some time. And thank you to Pastor Ian uh, for preaching for us last week as he did the first few verses of chapter 17. It was great to hear uh, from him and his heart as he preached uh, from John 17. Uh, the Anglican missionary, Leslie Newbegin, uh, you might be familiar with him or some of his writings. Uh, he wrote a commentary on John chapter 17, our text for the morning, and I want you to hear what he said. He said, when a man is going on a long journey, he will find time on the eve of his departure for a quiet talk with his family and if he is a man of God, will end by commending to God not only himself and his journey, but also the family whom he leaves behind. You may have experienced something like this, going on a trip, going on a journey, and upon your departure, you, uh, you pray for your family as you go. Or while you're away for a night or two or weeks or more, you pray that God would protect your family while you are gone. I remember just a week before last, I was in San Diego just for one night, and we did exactly what Newbegin was talking about. Had a sweet time with Amber and the kids that night before I left, in the morning that I left. And then while I was away, I, of course prayed for them. I'm not going to be there, right, to watch over them, to make sure the house is locked up at night, to, to meet the needs that come up. And so, Lord, would you keep them safe? Father, would you guard them? Would you watch over them until I can return? You likely, if you're a Christian, have prayed something similar as you've left family, spouse, uh, or kids behind for your travels. Lord, would you keep them healthy? Lord, would you keep them safe? Would you make it so my husband eats something that at least looks like a vegetable or is a shade of green? You know, keep my kids out of jail, please, until I get home, that, that sort of thing. And that's what we find really in John chapter 17 is something similar. Jesus praying to his father as Jesus prepares to leave and go to the cross and ascend back to his father. He knows his time is short. And so, before he's arrested, and before he goes to the cross, he prays to his Father. And that's what we find in John chapter 17, is this extended prayer of Jesus. Uh, Ian started it last week, talking about some of the things that Jesus prayed for in the first few verses of chapter 17. It's a section of the Bible often called the high priestly prayer, uh, because it's Jesus, as a, a priest often would, they would intercede on behalf of the people. They would intercede for the good of the people. And so Jesus here is coming before his father, and we get to hear his heart for his disciples. We'll get to see this morning how he prays. You already heard part of it read aloud, but let's look back at verse 9 to see how Jesus prays. He says first, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. 
for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. So really, Jesus makes it quite clear and specific in verse 9, right? I pray for them, and he says, I'm not praying for the world, and it's not that Jesus doesn't love the world or care for the world, but here he has a specific prayer and concern for his followers, for his disciples, and all that is ahead for them. And you see this powerful line there that I want to hone in on just at the end of verse 9 that kind of wraps this whole prayer. And you see he closes verse 9 by saying what? For they are yours. Followers of mine, Jesus says, are actually children of the Father. If you trust in me, you are a child of God, Jesus tells us. And we belong to God. And as children of God, our Father in heaven has this special concern for us. And so Jesus is pointing that out. Father, they are yours. They belong to you. Now, this is a simple concept and maybe is, again, a repetition for some of us. And yet it's so foundational to our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. But there's this fundamental identity that we have if we have put our faith in Jesus and it's that we are children of God, right? It's through faith in Jesus we can become children of God, adopted into his family. If we are in Christ, it means we no longer belong to ourselves. You are not your own, the scriptures tell us. You've been bought with a price. See, hear the good news in this from pastor and author Paul Tripp. Again, this may sound stifling or limiting that you belong to someone else. Someone else is calling the shots in your life, and yet hear these words. Paul Tripp says, you have been bought with a price, so your life is now under new management. The God who now owns you is committed to keep you and care for you. He's committed to supply everything you need. The God who owns you is in personal and careful control of every situation, location, and circumstance of your life. He covers your past with his grace. He protects, provides for, and empowers you in the present. And he holds every aspect of your future in his sovereign and gracious hands. You don't belong to you anymore. But that is a good thing. The one who now owns you is a wiser and more powerful manager of your life than you ever would have been. The fact that we belong to God, again, to some might sound like restriction and limits and stifling our freedoms. And in a sense, it is. But think of the joy and the good news it is to have God as our father, to no longer carry the anxiety and the burden of having to figure it all out on your own. Right? Of having to control all the details of your life and provide for yourself. You can instead, yes, work hard. Yes, work hard in the world with joy. But ultimately, you can sleep well at night and rest knowing that you are in God's care. See, in the ancient world, much like today, your quality of life was determined by the family that you belonged to and who your father was. If you're part of a loving family and you're provided for and cared for and protected and disciplined and supported you'd have a much better chance at flourishing in life. But often we, kind of like an unruly teenager, might want to run away from time to time, and we think we'd be better off if I was out, of, out from under the roof of my parents. 
we know better, right? If I would just go off on my own, I'd have more freedom. And that would be true in a sense, right? We could come and go as we please and do what we want when we want it. And yet, I'd be willing to argue that your quality of life would greatly decrease because then you have this great burden upon yourself to provide for yourself, to feed yourself, to find shelter for yourself rather than having the loving care of your father. And so Jesus says, hey, with all the challenges that are ahead for the disciples, they are yours, father. And then we're entrusted into his loving care. He goes on, we're going to see a few specific things he prays for in light of this. Look at verse 11. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I'm coming to you. And here it is. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. Right? I'm going away he's saying, so Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. There's a lot here you see in the text, and we're going to unpack some more of this next week, especially as we look at the rest of the prayer. There's a lot of talk about unity, right? Jesus praying that they would be one. We're going to talk about that in more detail next week. But you really see the main theme of this prayer, what Jesus is praying for. Father, protect them, he says in verse 11. And that really is a repeated theme throughout the prayer, as in this short passage, I believe four different times is that word for protect, protect them, keep them, guard them. Jesus is asking that his father would watch over his disciples and keep them from danger. Protect them by your name, or your translation might say, in his name, in your name. Keep them in your name. Keep them walking with you. Keep them in the truth. Keep them from straying. Right? The point is that it's possible that we would, would stray into danger. Jesus says, I protected them and kept them safe. Now it's your turn to watch them, Father. And the contrast you notice in the text is with Judas, right? Verse 12. He's the one who has been lost, he says. All have been kept safe other than Judas. And so, unlike Judas... Father, would you keep them walking in the truth? Would they not stray off and, and leave Christ the way Judas did? Would you keep my disciples on the path to life? And you notice the same thing's repeated. Look at verse 13, how he carries on. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. We're going to go back to the first part of verse 15 in a moment, but I just want you to, again, notice the main flow of thought here. Jesus, verse 13, I'm coming to you, Father. He's preparing to leave. And so verse 15, my prayer is that you protect them from the evil one. Right, so as my disciples navigate the world and all its challenges, there are very real present dangers, spiritual danger. And so the first point of Jesus' prayer, if you're taking notes, point number one, Jesus prays that disciples would be kept from danger. And not necessarily temporary physical danger, right? Keep Peter from stubbing his toe because he's, you know, clumsy and he's bound to do that and that's going to hurt. But talking about spiritual danger, eternal danger, Eternal realities are at play. 
He wants us to have life in Christ, to walk in the truth, to persevere in the faith. And it's possible that some would stray, right? That we would hear the gospel and yet not respond. Verse 15, Jesus talks about a very real enemy that we have, the evil one, he says. Back in John chapter 10, Jesus spoke of him and our enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Right? This very real spiritual being, Satan, who wants to, along with his demons, stand opposed to God and the work of God in the world and stand opposed to the people of God. Jesus elsewhere in John chapter 8 talks about our enemy and calls him, if you remember this, the father of lies. Rather than meeting you then on a battlefield with a weapon, our enemy prowls like a roaring lion and he wants to destroy us and devour us. But the way he's going to do it, he's going to wait till you're alone and then he's going to whisper lies in your ear. And he's going to lead you to believe things that are not true. See, there's plenty of, of overt spiritual warfare in the world. Plenty of, you know, visible attacks. Wherever we see death and destruction, we see our enemy at work. But so often, what we see as well with spiritual warfare is the work of deception. That the father of lies wants you to buy into lies about God, about yourself, about the world. See, Dallas Willard has once said, we truly live at the mercy of our ideas. And what he means by that is it's, it's our ideas, our beliefs about reality, our convictions about what is true that influence the decisions that we make. Right? And influence the trajectory of our lives. And if we believe false ideas about God and what he's like, about ourselves, about the reality of sin, about our, our great need before God, if we believe things that are not true and go off our merry way, and we think that life and flourishing is over here when actually it's over here, then we're going to make decisions based off of that and we're going to wind up in quite a mess. So are we aware of the great danger ahead for followers of Jesus? We have an enemy that wants to deceive us and get us to believe lies. So a first step in this is simply raising our awareness of that reality. See, we just spent a few days in Arizona uh, visiting family, and we had a great time. If you guys are watching from Arizona, we love you. We had a great time. And we brought the kids with us, and um, at the house we stayed, we saw we were with Amber's grandpa and his wife, and they had two uh, fur bandits or cats there. And we don't have cats. We have dogs. But Shepard, our one-and-a-half-year-old son, was like, he was enamored with these cats. He was like, I got to hang out with these cats all the time. And so he would kind of chase them around the house. And they got tired of it really quick. And they're really sweet cats, and they were great. And, you know, but um, one of them started to get a little bit annoyed with, with Shepard. Because um, for Shepard, you know, gentleness is like an elective course that he chose not to take in school. As, you know, if you've ever spent time with a toddler around animals, it's really stressful, right? Because they're like, look, I'm going to pick it up, or I'm going to pet it, and you know, you're just like swatting at it and hitting it, and you're like, please don't pull their ears or gouge their eyes, and so we're teaching Shepard, right, how to be gentleness, which, side note, gentleness is not a sign of weakness, right? Um, 
any toddler can just flail around, but gentleness is a sign of maturity and self-control. That's, that's another sermon. But um, <laughs> so what Shepard would do is he would, he would go around and chase this cat, and, and the one, eventually what it started to do was it would, like, snarl at him, you know, or, or hiss as cats do. It became catty. And, and it would start to swipe at Shepard. But, but, but he, um, do you think he, like, realized what was happening or was aware of the danger? No, he, he was totally oblivious to like, this cat wants to end me. You know, he didn't get it. And so we, as, as the adults present, you know, would have to, if, if Shepard was around and the cat was in the same room, we were like on high alert. Like make sure Shepard doesn't get near that cat because he's like charging right up to the cat every time wanting to play. And the cat is like, I'm going to, you know, claw you. And so we had to guard him and protect him and keep him from getting near because he wasn't aware of the danger. And so realize, just because we're not aware of the danger doesn't mean the danger isn't there. Right, just like Shepard, just because, you're not, just because you're oblivious to the danger in front of you doesn't mean that life is not going to claw you in the face like a cat might. Again, very sweet cats. Nothing happened. It was great all around, but you get the idea. So we have to be aware that there's very real spiritual danger out there a real possibility we would buy into lies about God, about how to live, about what the good life looks like, about how we make decisions. And we would make decisions and it would lead us to destruction. And we'd shipwreck our lives. And if we abandon Christ or don't trust in him, there are eternal implications for that, right? And so I point this out because I think so many of us today have become maybe suspicious of the doctrine of judgment or, or hell or the reality of spiritual danger at all, right? Or the exclusive claims of Christ. We've been, become suspicious of that, even though the Bible teaches it quite clearly. And so the result is what will happen is we'll start to say things like, like, well, is, you know, is Jesus really that necessary, you know, to life or flourishing? Like Jesus works great for me and I find peace in Jesus, but you know, it's optional, so take Jesus if you like, if it works for you, but for other people it doesn't, they can flourish in other ways, or, you know, plenty of people are nice out there in the world without Jesus and live good lives, and, uh, or God is loving, so he wouldn't judge anyone um, or punish anyone for sin, and we really downplay the justice of God, or, you know, so we'll interpret that then to mean, well, if you, so stray, if you stray from Jesus, it's really not that big of a deal, or there's not that much of an urgency to bring people to faith in Christ. So God wants you to be happy. And the main thing is to be true to yourself, you know, so just like live however you want and God's going to cheer you on in that. Does that sound kind of familiar with some of the ideas that we kind of embrace? And the problem is that, that Jesus teaches in so many ways the, the opposite of that, right? That, that there is real danger. We do need to come to faith in Christ to be forgiven, right? There, there's no other way, right? To come to the father. Um, hell is real. Judgment is real. And, and if we're deceived and we're not aware of that reality and the, the danger, then we'll, we'll go off our, our merry way and the results will be disastrous. And so I just want you to see that, that Jesus wouldn't pray this. He wouldn't pray, Father, keep them in your name. Father, protect them from the evil one who wants to destroy them. He wouldn't pray that if the danger wasn't real. And so we need to be aware and then seek uh, safety and protection where it can be found, which is only in Christ. 
right? We, as the people of God, need to stay fast and true to the message of the gospel, to not go astray like Judas, but just just week after week, continue to embrace the simple truth of the gospel of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, our sin and need, God's great love for us, his provision, his way uh, that he has made for us to come back into relationship with him. He came for us. He died for us. He rose again, and it's in him that we have life. Just to cling to that message, to be gospel people over and over again. That's how we stay in the truth. So Jesus prays that his disciples would be kept from danger. Look at verse 14 again. There's the next point here. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they're not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. So, point number two, if you're taking notes, Jesus is praying that his disciples would be kept in the world. Kept from danger, but kept in the world. All right, this is a big notice, a few things. Uh, first, verse 14, the world has hated them. They're, they're not of the world, he says. You seen those cute little bumper stickers, N-O-T-W? You know, not of this world, Christians put on their cars. Nothing wrong with that bumper sticker. You know, not of this world. It's, it's coming from this passage. Just the idea that followers of Jesus have been called out of the world, that their, their home is not necessarily in the world. They're not of the world any longer. We have in Christ this new identity, this new citizenship uh, in the kingdom of God. This, this fundamental transformation and change has taken place. God's given us new hearts and an identity as his child. Once we were in the world and of the world, but now we are in the world still, but not of the world. Right? We've been brought from, from darkness and death and judgment because of sin to forgiveness and light and adoption to sonship in the family of God. Through Jesus, we have a new home. We've been called out of the world. But the key here, Verse 15, we've been kept in the world. Look at it again, verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them. So Father, I don't want you to zap them away. It's not like you become a Christian and then, boom, teleportation. You're off to the clouds and you're safe and you're away from, from the mess and how complex and complicated and difficult the challenges of life are. No, I want you to keep them in the world, he says. That's important because throughout Christian history, uh, and even today, plenty of us have this impulse to, to just escape the challenges of the world, to withdraw, right? It's really messy and sinful and hard out there. So let's just like create a little separate, you know, commune where we live and we don't have to rub shoulders with all those people. Yeah, some people think that way. Uh, if you look at the early centuries of Christian history, you have the, the whole monastic movement, right? Monks going into the desert to set up their little, you know, like communities where they could pray and read scripture and do all those spiritual things apart from, you know, the noise and the chaos of the world. Now, monasticism, ha you know, if you look at the history of it, there's some complexity to it, right? Good things came from it um, that, we, that we could talk about. It wasn't all bad, but there's a... There's a a negative there in that it was this kind of isolationism, right? We're going to withdraw from the noise and chaos and messiness of the world so we can do the real good, you know, spiritual formation and prayer and so on. 
And, and some of us still are wanting that sort of uh, reality today. Some of us, without fully, you know, going into the desert and becoming a monk and taking a vow of poverty, um, we, we kind of want a similar withdrawal. We, we, we grumble, don't we? Do, we? do we grumble? Are you a grumbler sometimes about the world around you? Read the headlines and grumble, grumble, grumble. And California, taxes, you know, progressive ideology, Newsome, grumble, grumble, grumble. And, um, and we have this impulse that we just want to get away. We want to escape. We want to leave because it's going to be safer, you know, somewhere else. Or if I just like don't rub shoulders with my, you know, neighbors who have all these weird ideas and weird. Pra- I don't know. We, just, we, we want to withdraw where it's safer. And the problem with that is Jesus is saying to us and showing us that we're supposed to be in the world. And mi- mixed up in it out there. Doing God's work yet present and there will come a day when Jesus returns and restores all things and redeems his world and we long for that day and that's okay to do but until he does we're called to be present in the world and for the world with the heart of the father for the world who so loved the world that he sent his son so we're not, we're to, we're to resist this urge of escapism. I mean, look, and if, if you're considering moving away from California, or if you're listening to this and you move, sometimes God calls people to leave California. That's okay. I'm not, but, but there are people that God calls to stay, right? And to be a presence here in our community, to love our neighbors and, and preach the gospel and reach our world for Christ. But so we're, we're called to be present and active wherever we are. Jesus says we're supposed to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth, but salt isn't very effective if it doesn't come into contact with that which it's supposed to preserve, right? So in order for salt to be salty and do its work, it has to be engaged. In order for light to be seen, it has to be around darkness. So salt and light requires being present, being in the world, rubbing shoulders with people who are different from us. And it's hard to reach a world that we just grumble about. We have to be very careful about our hearts towards people. Because they can tell. Right? People know if you just grumble about them and don't like them. So remain. They, they would be kept. My disciples would be in the world, protected, and influence the world for good. Right? There's this biblical pattern that it's not as much that hey, God whisk me away to safety. You know, God, uh, take me out of this really challenging situation. Instead, what we see God most often do is preserve and protect his people through the trial. Keep them in it, and yet protect them and preserve them as they go. And again, I don't mean to make light of the the challenges of living in the world today. There's all kinds of challenges in following Jesus and living in our culture. I'm not trying to make light of that, but we have to be careful that we do not just withdraw and grumble because we have a, a purpose. And I want you to see that in the text as well. Why Jesus wants his disciples in the world Look at the last part of his prayer uh, for this morning. Verse 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. So notice Jesus is praying for three things. He's praying that his disciples would be kept from danger. If you're taking notes, they'd be kept in the world and that they'd be kept for mission. 
Okay, from danger, talked about that. In the world, just talked about that. And now for mission. And so here's what's going on here in verse 17. Jesus asks his father to sanctify his disciples. Big word, sanctify. We don't use it very often, but sanctified means to be made holy or set apart, uh, shown to be distinct and different. And so throughout the Old Testament, this word sanctify or, or holiness was used as this idea that, that the people of God would look different from the world around them. They would be set apart. They would be distinct. People would see the way they live, the things they believe, the way they act, the way they treat people, and see there's something different about this group of people, and that that would glorify God. But you have to see that being sanctified was for a purpose. It wasn't just like uh, you're sanctified and made holy and set apart, so you know God brings you over here, and you just enjoy him, and you and him, and you and him forever. Right? You're sanctified. You're made different for a purpose. Right? The people of God in the Old Testament were to look different so that they could reach the world around them. So that the nations around them would be drawn to the one true God. So that the nations around them would see how they act and see the law and see the commands of God and how it was good. And God would use them in a special way to make himself known in the world. Now, as an illustration, it's a few months ago, uh, we redid uh, our kitchen a little bit. We put in a tile backsplash, and I helped a little bit, but it was kind of like a group project where one of the group members does less of the work but still gets the same grade, you know? So Amber and her dad, you know, really did the bulk of the heavy lifting, and I was, I was there, you know, and I got the A on the project. But um, if you've done tile work, you know, there's a couple steps in it that can get kind of sticky, right? You have this adhesive tile glue that you put on the back of the tile and, and you put on the wall and then you have, you know, you need to kind of wipe it up and clean it up a bit as you go and wipe stuff off. Um, and then you, when you do the grout, right, you got to put the grout on and there's this kind of like washing process you do to wipe away a lot of the excess grout. And so there's a number of things that you use towels for, but you don't just use any old towels, right? You don't just like, hey, let's open up the kitchen drawer and we have our nice kitchen hand towels and we have like our little, you know, face cloths in the bathroom and our nice bathroom hand towels. Let's use those to wipe away, you know, the tile glue and the grout. You know, Amber um, wouldn't be thrilled if those were the towels that we all use for that, right? What do you do? You buy special towels. We went to the hardware store. We got, you know, heavy duty hardware towels, you know, you know, special towels. And we use those for the project. So they were for a special purpose. They were different from the rest of the towels in the house. And they had a special task where we use them for something specific to wipe off the, the gunk and the grout and the, and the glue and, and so on. You see what I'm saying? We, they were set apart for a specific purpose. And so Jesus prays, Similarly, that his people would be sanctified for a specific purpose. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Right? So we're sanctified for mission. We're, we're set apart to be used by God in a special way in the world. Right? We have this uh, fourfold commitment that we talk about worship, connect, grow, and stay. No, sorry. Worship, connect, grow, and go. Or we are called to go out into the world, leave these walls, and engage the needs of the world with the power of the gospel and the love of Christ and invite people to know God and to see our world more reflect the kingdom and heart of God. 
So I just want you to see that this prayer here for Jesus, sometimes we read it as it's all defensive, right? There's a big, scary world out there. And so we're just, we're like on our back foot as Christians. Like, ah, and so just like go to Costco and buy a case of Top Ramen and find a cave somewhere and just hope for the best, you know? Just like, hang on, I hope you make it. But we see that this prayer is not all defensive, right? Sanctify them, he says, because they're sent out into the world, right? We have a, a mission ahead of us. It's not just build bigger walls and withdraw and go to the commune. Um, it's step out into the world as the people of God for the purposes of God. God has a mission for his church. Or some have said he has a, a church for his mission. That's to redeem the world, to invite men and women everywhere to come to know Jesus and find salvation in him. That the whole church would take the whole gospel to the whole world. It's a big task ahead of us. And I want you to see, friends, that you're, you're part of this. The church is God's plan A, some have said. Right? So that, that's, that's you. That's us. If you're a Christian, if you put your faith in Christ, you have this call to be sanctified, to belong to God, and then used by God in the world for the world's good and the glory of God. And here's the thing. Most of us, the vast majority of us will live this out not as pastors or Bible scholars or preachers, but as everyday men and women who love Jesus and are called to love their neighbors and do the work of God out in the world. That's how most of this work will be done, to consider where has God placed you? Who has God placed in your life? What opportunities do you have? What resources do you have? What gifts and skills has God given you? How can you leverage all of those things to honor Christ and his kingdom? Right? To work hard for the Lord in whatever industry and field that is that can honor God. To give generously to those in need. To pray for your neighbors who are hurting and invite them to church and may share the gospel with them. To act on behalf of the vulnerable and the needy in the name of Jesus. To be an, an example of integrity in the workplace. Right? To represent Christ wherever you are. And so the call for most of us is not going to be, hey, go to seminary and become a pastor. It's going to be serve God out in the world where he's placed you. And so Jesus prays that we be kept for mission sanctified. But, but the key here, you notice in the verse that we haven't talked about yet, is the how. How is God going to sanctify us and prepare us for mission? Verse 17, what does Jesus say? Sanctify them by the truth. And he says, your word is truth. So the word of God is what God will use to sanctify you, to shape you, to convict you and change you and transform you, to renew your mind, as Romans 12 talks about. Think about it. If, if we think like the world and act like the world and value the same things as the world around us, then we're not going to be any good for the world to be used by God. Right? If, think about it. If we don't look any different, some of us don't look any different from the world. We talk like the world, we joke like the world, we watch like the world, we post on social media like the world, we're angry like the world. Those don't look any different. 
But if we let God's word shape us and convict us and lead us to repentance and humility and that we start to think the thoughts of God based on scripture, right? We start to embrace the ways of God and our convictions align with the convictions of God that we find in his word. Then God will use us. And so God uses his word to prepare us for mission. Have you ever tried to do a task but you didn't have the right tool to do it, or the tool that you were using was kind of like not well maintained. Have you ever tried to cut vegetables or a steak with a, a dull knife? Or uh, have you ever used a screw or tried to use a screw or unscrew a screw that had been stripped? Or have you ever pushed a shopping cart and one of the wheels is like, <laughs> you know, and it's really frustrating, it doesn't work? Right? Sometimes we, uh, it won't go well. <laughs> And so in the same way, God wants his people to be uh, prepared and effective, sanctified tools in his hands to be used out in the world. Again, for the good of the world and for the glory of God. So we need to be shaped by the word of God. And I learned to think uh, how scripture teaches us to think and discern how scripture teaches us to discern and surrender the way scripture teaches us to surrender and embrace the truth that scripture shows us. And so we need to be people of the book, which is why we preach the word of God here and why coming to church is so important that we hear the word of God taught and embrace it and learn to apply it to our lives. Uh, But also we can learn to read the Bible in our homes. Uh, We can listen to the Bible on our drive with the the Bible app. There's so many great resources now, right? The Bible Project, you can watch video summaries of the Bible. There's so many great ways to get the word of God into your life. And so the question for you is how can you take that next step of obedience? Uh, to engage the word of God even more than you do now. So Jesus here in John 17 has prayed that his followers would be kept from danger in the world and for mission. We have a chance to respond now as a church family by by coming to the table and, and taking communion together. Jesus told his followers to take these elements, the bread representing his broken body and the cup representing his shed blood for us. He told us to take these as we gather in remembrance of him and all that he's done. And this shows us the primary way that God has kept us and protected us and given us life. It's by the blood of his son. God has protected us from judgment through Jesus It's through his life, death, and resurrection that we can be forgiven, covered over our sin and shame. We can receive forgiveness and reconciliation with God through Christ and his work and what he's accomplished. So that's what we remember as we take these elements together. We're going to pray, and then we invite you uh, to participate with us uh, if you have put your faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for this morning. And we thank you for the words of John 17, Jesus, for your prayer uh, for your disciples. We pray similarly, Lord, that you would keep us from danger, keep us walking with you. Keep us in the world, Lord. You have good work for us to do here. And Lord, we pray you'd keep us ready for mission. And so we, we come to the table just humble, aware of our need. Thank you that you've given us grace and forgiveness 
and mercy through the work of Christ. It's, it's him we remember now. In Jesus' name, amen. So on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen.